Hi, my name's Henry. By the way, my mom is working for Birth Monopoly. I have a secret that I can't tell anybody. What I know about Birth Monopoly is not very much. And this is Birth Aloud with Kristen Piscucci. On Birth Aloud Radio today, we have my friend and colleague, Sarah Conrad. Hi, Sarah. Hello. <laughs> Sarah and I met over the film, actually, Mother May I, that I'm working on. She offered to help out on some of the media stuff and the public relations stuff that that we were working on. And as it turns out, she has a background in it. So it worked out really well. And like pretty much everyone else connected with the film, she has her own experience with the subject matter, which is birth trauma and obstetric violence. There's a really kind of interesting twist with her story that we'll talk about in a minute. But basically, Sarah worked at the hospital where her birth took place and where her trauma took place. We'll hear how all that played out. But welcome, Sarah, and don't be nervous. Yeah, I'm a little nervous. <laughs> That's okay. Everybody always is. It's fine. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your background prior to the birth that we are going to talk about. Yeah, so um, I have a background in journalism and at the time of this birth trauma, I was actually working at the hospital in fundraising. I was doing the events and the sponsorship solicitation and yeah, working with the fundraising and PR team. Okay. This was your first baby? Yep, my first baby. Okay. Did you have any specific plans for her birth? Yes. So I, I really wanted a natural birth. I started out by watching The Business of Being Born like years before I got pregnant. And I remember my takeaway from that film. Like I remember thinking like, okay, if I just get a doula and do my research, like I'm going to be fine. Like this is a cascade of interventions thing and I'm not going to let that happen to me. Like I remember thinking that. And I also remember being a little bit skeptical about it too. Like thinking, oh, I bet this happens, but I bet this doesn't happen anywhere. A, a little more too about that is that I, I trusted the hospital quite a lot because I worked there, I think. Mm -hmm. And also my mom um, works in hospital administration and has for like the past 30 plus years. So it just never, it just never really occurred to me that something so traumatic would happen in a hospital. Yeah. Where's this hospital located? It was in South Lake Tahoe, which is a rural, small town in Northern California on the border of um, Nevada. Right. So it's about two hours north of Sacramento. Okay. It's pretty much the only option, right? Yes. So it's a, it's a tiny hospital, you know, really small labor and delivery department, no NICU. And the next hospital is about an hour away. It's down in Carson City. It's down like this mountain pass, basically. It's a pretty gnarly pass. And then <laughs> the other way you can go is Reno, and that's about an hour and a half. Yeah. Yeah. But it sounds like you didn't really have any reservations about this hospital anyway. So you weren't really worried no. about your options. No. I mean, I had, you know, I thought, I thought in the beginning, well, I could go to Carson, and that would be a bigger hospital. 
but I remember trying it out in the beginning and thinking, you know, I can't, I can't drive an hour, you know, when I'm, at least my thought was I'm not going to drive an hour in labor, probably in the middle of the night down this mountain path. I mean, that's a reasonable thing to say, I think. (laughs) And I was due in winter. I was due in December and it just happened to be, of course, the worst snowstorm in 10 years. Mm-hmm. But like Lake Tahoe had experienced, well, the worst snow year, actually. Like it was just being hammered with snowstorms every weekend for, from like December through March. Wow. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So did you feel comfortable with your provider? Yeah. So I, I had been seeing my OB for years there and I actually worked with her at the hospital. So like I knew her professionally as well, you know, and, and personally, and I saw her and she had been kind of the natural OB person at the hospital. Like everyone talked about her in the community is like, oh yeah, go see her. She's, you know, she's the one who will do the natural birth. She's really cool. Everything will be great. So I was kind of expecting that. But the night that I went into labor, the person who was on call was actually a traveling doctor from Southern California. And I had never met her before. I didn't know anything about her. And she wasn't even one of the regular OBs. Like we had three OBs in that practice. And I knew each of them pretty well. And I'd gone over my birth plan with all of them. And they had all approved it. They had all said, like, this is this is pretty much standard. And it was, you know, asking for natural things. Like, I don't want to be, be monitored um, the whole time. Like, I, wanna, I want to labor in a bathtub. And I want to have my baby in a position that I choose, probably on my hands and knees. But I knew I didn't want to have a baby on my back. Like, that was my, you know, big, big stick. Yeah. So then what happened when you met her in labor? So I got there in labor at, I guess it was about 11 p.m. It was a Friday night and it was the week before Christmas, which was, let's see, almost two weeks, you know, past my estimated due date, which everyone at the hospital was like really weird about. Like they're like, we never see anyone, you know, at 41 weeks and five days. Like everyone we see is under 41 weeks, which was kind of scary for me. Like I was like, well, that's the red flag, but. You know, I was in labor. I was already there. <laughs> and um, so I meet this doctor. And honestly, when I first meet her, I didn't, I didn't think anything strange about it. You know, she came in with a nurse. She introduced herself. Um, I, asked for the, I asked for the epidural. I had changed my mind. And I was at six centimeters. You know, she introduced herself. She left. And then she came back about a half an hour later. And she said, Sarah, we read your birth plan. And she had, like, her arms crossed. And it was just, like, a weird... Like she was standing weird and she's like, and just so you know, I love doing C-sections, but that doesn't mean you're going to get one. And at this point, you know, I was pretty far into labor land. Like I was very internal. I was on my hands and knees and I was, you know, making all the intimate sounds that we make, you know? And, um, and I remember thinking like, that's not good. Like that's a scary thing to come out of the doctor's mouth. Um, yeah. And I remember the nurse standing next to her looking at me and she looked terrified. Like she, she looked like she had never seen a woman in labor like that before. Um, oh, terrified of you? Yeah. Yeah. Did you have the epidural at that point? No. At that point I was on my hands and knees. Oh, um, okay. Yeah. And I had my, you know, I had my own labor gown. I had my doula next to me um, with a bunch of tattoos. My husband. <laughs> That was a scene. But yeah, she, she looked terrified. And I remember that scared me. And so they left. And um, 
And I remember I just, I just didn't see a whole lot of people. Like there was a half an hour to an hour where they left me alone. And another nurse came back that I had never seen. And I was like, oh, the epidural, like I reminded her. And she was like, oh yeah, you know, we called the anesthesiologist and we've left two messages and we just haven't heard anything back. Oh, and so it wasn't somebody who was on site, I guess, because it was late night on a Friday and a small hospital. Right. So I was, you know, the people who came in, and they never introduced themselves. Like I had no idea who they were, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And I remember at that point being, being worried, I guess, like I, thinking like, oh no, I'm, I'm not going to get the epidural. Like it's not going to happen. I remember thinking that because um, I was like, well, they checked me into six. It's been a while, you know, I'm probably progressed. And I got scared. Like I kind of got scared. That you would have to give birth without medication. Yeah. 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 And for some reason, it's this, it's this point, I, it scared me in that setting. Like I, I think, I think the way that people were talking to me and kind of like not really paying attention, I just felt really like unsupported. And I felt like I don't, I don't really want to give natural, you know, birth naturally in this setting was my feeling. I felt, I felt just very alone. Um, and it's like, I had my doula there. She was holding my hand. She was rubbing my back, but I, I still felt, I don't know, scared. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. There's, um, I guess a certain vulnerability to, I mean, it's, you're vulnerable no matter how you give birth, but you know, it's like, there's a certain type of vulnerability to do it without medication in sort of like listening to your body, doing whatever. And then of course there's a different type of vulnerability in having an epidural and, you know, maybe not being as able to physically, you know, comport yourself, but you're probably more there mentally. Right. And that was like my whole kind of internal discussion with myself in my bathtub. I decided I wanted, I wanted the epidural. Somehow I had justified it in my mind. Like people get epidurals every day, Sarah, and nothing bad happens to them. That was like my discussion happening in my head. I was very internal when I was in labor. If I had, I think if I had been telling this to my doula, it would have probably went down differently, but you know, it was all, it was all internal. (laughs) But yeah, so at that, at that point, you were realizing that you might not get the epidural that you were waiting for. So then I would say probably half an hour to 45 minutes later, my doula asked me, she said, do you want fentanyl to hold you over? And at that point I would have said yes to anything. You know, I was at that point in labor and I was like, yes, let's, let's do this. And I remember her telling me like, okay, well, the first dose is like, she started telling me the first dose is only going to, it's going to work. And then the second dose won't be as good. And I remember just being like, I don't care. Let's just, let's just do this. (laughs) You know, like I was at that point. And I guess the nurse had asked her, it had suggested it to her. And then, you know, my doula had asked me and, and somehow in that moment, it seemed like my doula was suggesting it to me. That's how it felt. Um, even though that's not really how it went down. Yeah. So I said yes to that. And another, like another hour went by, like time went by and the fentanyl did not show up (laughs) when it did. Um, it was, it was the anesthesiologist who came in with the nurse and I got it in tandem with the epidural, which is not what I wanted at all. You know, I would have either wanted either one, but not both. Yeah. Um, And I remember as soon as they gave me the fentanyl, I felt, completely disconnected from my body and it was so weird to be in my body and then all of a sudden just completely out of it it was almost like I was like standing over my body like I wasn't there anymore but I could still feel all of the pain so it was just a really strange sensation and like I don't know my thoughts seemed really like I couldn't I couldn't articulate what I was thinking 
it was just really strange and and frankly it was really scary um i remember as soon as it happened i thought oh that was a mistake and oh no you know <laughs> so um they, they checked me after the fentanyl and the epidural and i was at eight centimeters and later i found out that the anesthesiologist had asked the nurse to put in a certain amount of fentanyl like half a vial or one dose and like without behind his back and without telling him she put in double that dose i personally think that has a lot to do with how i reacted to it i think i think it was too much for me um and then i saw in the medical chart that they had like doses of narcan that they gave me to you know counteract that so it was why just, did she do that i don't know i don't know and i didn't you know i didn't see her her do it i just felt it so it was it was just scary finding that out afterward i remember my husband told me about about a week afterward, because I was telling him how I felt in the fentanyl. I said, well, I would, I would never do that again. That's horrible. And he's like, yeah, well, you know, she, she pushed double in. And I was like, how really? did he know that? How did he know that? He saw her do it. Um, was it a mistake? I don't think it was a mistake because he heard the anesthesiologist request a certain amount and then, and then she just did double. So it didn't, it didn't seem like a mistake, which is concerning. So let's see. So then I had the epidural and the fentanyl inside my body. And they laid me down flat on my back, like completely flat. I remember I was like on this flat pillow, like looking at the ceiling. I would say almost immediately the nurse started panicking and she didn't tell me what was going on. She just, she just like looked around and said, what should I do? Oh my God, what should I do? Should I call the doctor? And I was pretty freaked out, but also I remember being a little bit like almost thinking like, come on, you know, <laughs> like haven't you seen a bunch of women in labor? Like why, why are you panicking? You know? And I remember looking at my doula's face and, and her face kind of said the same thing. Like it was like, what? Like, why are you panicking? And so. Is this the same one who was panicking when you were in unmedicated labor before? Yeah. Yeah. For some reason I got the panicky nurse. So she's, she's panicking. The surgery team runs in. There's like all of a sudden, like, you know, five or six people in my room. And then shortly after that, the doctor like saunters in, like she like comes in like no big deal, you know? And I guess at that point, I found, I found out after from my dual of notes, because again, no one's saying anything to me or like telling me what's going on. But after I found out that the heart rate, my baby's heart rate had gone down and I had become hypotensive and um, the heart rate had come back up before the doctor came back into the room. So at that point, she was not concerned. And so she like rolls up her stool, like sits between the legs, <laughs> doesn't, doesn't say anything to me, doesn't acknowledge me. And she she tells my husband, she turns to him, you know, he's like standing at my waist and she turns to him and she says, I'm having trouble picking up the heart rate. So we're going to put in an internal monitor. And he's like, okay, you know, it's like, you're asking me, like, it, he doesn't say anything really. It's just like, he kind of gives her the, the okay. I That's so gross, like, by the way. Like, right. So close. Yeah. Like I'm right there. I'm still there, you know? And no one's even looking at me. And, and I remember thinking just like, no, no, you know, trying to like make eye contact with my husband, like anybody, you know, like, please, somebody make eye contact with me, but nothing. And, and honestly, it was like, I had the thought like, no, 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 run through my head. And then it was done. It was like completely done. She was just like, you know, membranes ruptured. And then she said like nine centimeters and it was just was done it was over and then she um she tried to get the monitor on baby's head and she couldn't get it and she tried several times and she started laughing which did not make me feel very confident (laughs) 
then she asked the nurse to do it, and then the nurse got it in finally. No, wait, um, this is the thing they're screwing into your baby's head. Yes, they're screwing this into my baby's head, and I know this. I know they're screwing this into my baby's head, and I'm livid about it. You know, I have my birth plan, like, do not do this. Like, that's, it, was, it was horrifying to me, but my husband has no idea. All she's told my husband is we're putting the monitor in. She doesn't explain to him we have to break her water to do this. You know, we have to screw it into the baby's head. Like, she doesn't tell him any of this, of course. And are you speaking like, at this point at all? No, I'm not. I am like basically in paralyzed and just, it's like the thoughts are rolling through my head, but I can't say them fast enough is how I feel. It's almost like I'm in like this like jello or something, you know, and everything had a really like surreal and inconsequential quality to it, which is also really scary. Like I remember thinking I would get fired up and angry and then all of a sudden the thought would just like float away. Wow. <laughs> Yeah. You know, like, no big deal. Yeah. So at this point, my water was broken. Um, the monitor was screwed in. I was at nine centimeters. And she, she made a joke here about having had her hand in my vagina the whole time. And I remember I was just kind of, I was, I was just processing that she had made this joke. And that's when the nurse, who, who wasn't looking at me at all, like, no one, no one's looking at me. The nurse was looking over my shoulder, I suppose, at the monitor. And that's when she says, that's it. I'm rolling her into OR. And like, as the words are coming out of her mouth, like I feel my, the bed moving beneath me. And I'm like, oh my God, like they're, she's disconnecting my bed right now. And like, I just remember all this adrenaline shot into me, you know, it was like, what's happening? Like one second, I'm at nine centimeters and I'm a little excited because I'm thinking, hey, I'm about to like probably start pushing pretty quickly here. And then all of a sudden I'm being wheeled into the operating room and I can't see anyone's face here. Like, it's like my husband's not there. My doula's not there. Like all of a sudden I'm in the hallway and I like open my mouth to be like, pretty much like, what the hell is going on? Like what, you know, no one's telling me anything. Um, and she leans over my bed and she like basically like kind of like scream whispers in my face. And she's like, this is about your baby now, Sarah. Don't you care about your baby? And I remember at that moment, I was like, nothing I say to this woman, nothing I say right now is, is going to sink in, you know, that, that of course I care about my baby. And the whole time, you know, I have been thinking pretty much only about my baby. And I remember just feeling really like almost, almost at that moment, I checked out, I think. Yeah. And afterward I had, I, I was really angry at myself for that. You know, I thought like, why that moment? Why didn't I? I don't know, scream or yeah. I don't know what I thought I could have done, but right. I had a lot of trouble with that moment postpartum. Kind of um, like rape victims who freeze and they're paralyzed and they can't defend themselves. And then right. they blame themselves afterwards for not resisting right. more. Exactly. I have a question about when she said that to you. So was that the doctor who said that? No, that was the nurse. The nurse. So I'm curious, mm -hmm. like, why she said that to you. Like, was she anticipating that you were about to say something, some sort of resistance to what was going on? I think so. And I thought about that moment so much, like thinking, like, what, what about me? You know, I, I really took it personally. Like, what about me made her say that to me? I mean, did she think it was because I had a birth plan, because I had a doula? Like, was she... Was she thinking I, I came in there to like, I don't know, have some kind of power struggle. It was just, 
it was really weird. And it seemed, it seemed so out of left field to me because I hadn't been speaking and no one had been speaking to me, you know, for the last, like, I don't know, hour and a half. It was just really confusing to me to have no one speak to me at all. And then all of a sudden I'm being, I'm being yelled at basically. Like I'm not being, I don't know, compliant or something. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I am paralyzed in this bed, reeling on fentanyl. You know, it's not like I'm out of control. (laughs) Yeah. So you've already been like effectively silenced. And the nurse is like, hey, just before you think about saying anything, you better stay silent. Right. And I was effectively silenced by her too, because she was the one who gave me that dose of fentanyl which I find really, you know, interesting as well. It was almost like she was trying to, I felt, physically silence me. And then just in case I had enough mental strength, you know, to say something. She, yeah, she wanted to tap that too. Tell me what happened next. The OB comes by. She tells me the heart rate went back up, but that she has to do it anyway. She leaves. I get to the operating room. They put me on the table. I come back for just a second enough to to start basically begging and saying like, please, I'm scared. I'm so scared. I try to make eye contact with anybody. No one will look at me except the anesthesiologist. And he kind of just looks sorry for me. So I'm, I'm begging. And this is when the OB decides to say, you can't control everything, Sarah. Sometimes you just have to let go and let God. And at that moment, I felt like what was happening to me was on purpose. And I just, I just went somewhere else. Like I, I don't even remember the next thing I remember is my husband sitting next to me with tears rolling down his face. Okay. Well, let's take a break on that note. We'll be right back with Sarah and her story on Birth Aloud Radio. You're listening to WLXU 93.9 LP FM Lexington. Lexington Community Radio. And this is Birth Aloud with Kristen Piscucci. This program is supported by attorney Susan Jenkins, a national advocate for midwives and birth activists, specializing in business, governmental, and political issues related to birthing rights and the practice of midwifery. She can be reached at area code 866-686-1348. Would you like to support Birth Aloud Radio? Please contact us at birthaloudradio at gmail.com. We're back with Birth Aloud Radio and Sarah, who was just sharing the part in her birth story where she was waking up from a C-section and seeing her husband's face after what kind of sounded to me like punishment, like punitive treatment by her care providers for we don't know what reason since she was pretty much paralyzed and unable to speak for her the duration of her labor so then what happened so yeah so i see my husband and he's he's crying and i'm thinking the worst i'm thinking well either something's wrong with our baby or i'm dying and i don't know my brain starts going into really weird places you know like I start thinking, well, you know, if I'm dying, like, I feel so sorry for him. Like, just, you know, I'm just, I'm in a really dark place. So your husband's not crying tears of joy. Like, he looks no. upset. 
no, he's horrified. And I, and I've never seen him before or after with tears streaming down his face like that. He was gripping my hand very tightly. He kept looking over at what they were doing and then looking back at me. And I remember also, it's almost like he didn't see me. You know, he was looking at me like I was not there, which, which was really scary. So maybe he was kind of in his own trauma while trying to yeah. support you during yours. Yeah. And I remember just, you know, it was, it was quiet. No one was speaking to me at all. I looked up in the lights. I realized I could see my body, you know, and it, but there was this weird disconnect where I didn't realize it was my body at first. In the lights? Yeah, in the light, in the operating light. And I remember kind of blanking out a little bit and then coming back and not being able to breathe, like just, you know, just horrifying things. And I remember, you know, kind of waking up at that point and saying, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. And then, then I was breathing and I don't know. It was just, it was very confusing. It, it was very confusing. And then the next thing I remember was my baby was crying, but no one was saying anything. And so I said, where is she? And I said that about three times. No one answered me. Um, and then finally, she was put like on my neck. I guess the, the sheet was up pretty high. So they put her on my neck for about, I don't know, 10 seconds or so. So I could see her. And that, and that part of my story, uh, I remember when I saw her for the first time, I felt nothing. Like, I didn't feel joy. I didn't feel like she was my baby. I just felt, I almost felt disappointed, which is horrible. It, it feels horrible that I'm even saying that, but that's, that's really how I felt. I just felt completely let down. I've heard a lot of women say that, that not my baby and absolutely no connection following a traumatic C-section like that. Yeah, I just felt like she could have been anybody's baby. And I was really conscious at that point of how I felt I should feel. I remember thinking this should be a really joyful moment. You know, someone should say congratulations, but there was like, there was no joy in that room. Not only not from me, but not from my husband and not from, from any of the medical staff. There was just, there was no warmth at all. And then they, they took her away. And then the next thing I remember was waking up in the, um, the recovery room, you know, with the sad little fluorescent light. <laughs> it was like four in the morning or something. I had a clock right in front of me. It was like four. My doula was there. And I just started crying. Like I just started sobbing. And weirdly, I don't know if I had like already started suppressing things, but I couldn't figure out why I was upset. Like, I remember saying to my doula, I don't know why I'm crying. I don't know why. And I remember her looking just really, really sad for me. Yeah. And then I saw basically pictures of my baby my husband took on his cell phone and sent, texted to my doula. And that, that's how I saw her for the next couple of hours. Mm -hmm. And another thing is they, they had her on a breathing machine as well, um, which was something that I forgot about the um, hospitalist came in before I went into recovery and told me that something was wrong with her breathing. I could hardly comprehend it. I think at that point I was so traumatized, but anything they said to me, I just wasn't, I wasn't processing. I think that I feel like they could have said anything to me at that point And I would have just been, you know, like in shock sort of. Right. Exactly. And it was weird too, because I remember 
I remember, you know, they took her, they took her away. And I think someone even asked me, do you want your husband to stay here or go with the baby? And I remember thinking, what does it matter what I feel or think? Like, yeah, like all of a far. sudden now you care what my right. wishes are. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I felt it, it just was bewildering to me. Like, I was like, why would you ask me? <laughs> so what was, um, what was the postpartum like? The postpartum was dark. I feel like it was just survival for the first few weeks. My husband had to help me do everything, which I felt like, I mean, and I know, I know I'm not, but I felt like a failure. I felt like I can't take care of myself. I can't take care of this baby. We had her in this like co-sleeper connected to my bed and I couldn't, I couldn't twist to even reach her out of the co-sleeper. So every time I woke up to breastfeed her, my my husband had to get up out of bed, come over to the other side and, and bring her to me. And it was just, it was so ridiculous. I remember thinking, I remember thinking how ridiculous it was. And I was sleeping, you know, kind of half sitting up because I couldn't get out of bed by myself. He had to help me to bed. He had to help me to the bathroom. And it wasn't just, you know, a couple of days. It was, it was weeks. It was weeks of it. I know this sounds silly, but it was like, you know, the dead of winter. It was dark outside at 4 p.m. And my timing was completely off. I would wake up with the baby at like 4 p.m. almost and start my day. <laughs> it was just completely lopsided. And I was so depressed. I was so depressed. And I was um, having nightmares and flashbacks every night. And I would go over and over what happened to me just in detail and just trying to figure out where for the first few months where I went wrong. I kept thinking, what, at what point did I, did I mess this up? At what point could I have done something different to change the outcome of this? And I just, I, I blame myself for a long time. And I think that was the worst part of it. And I, and it took me months to realize that it wasn't my fault. It took me months to realize that. And I think what made me realize that too was that, and, and I'll say that I was, I have a history of being sexually abused. And I think weirdly because of that situation and knowing that victims blame themselves, it occurred to me that that's exactly what I was doing. And I don't, honestly, I don't think I would have even realized that had that not happened to me. Like it just, it became very clear to me that like, Oh, I am, I'm blaming myself and I am the victim. Like they did that to me and there's nothing that I did that made me deserve what they did to me. Um, which was what I was trying to figure out when I was going over and over it in my mind. I was like, is it, I mean, silly things, Kristen, like, was it what I wrote my birth plan? <laughs> you know, was it, was it what I was wearing? Like, what did I do to make what I was wearing? Out? My God. <laughs> Right? Like, I remember thinking, like, was it because I didn't wear the hospital gown that they gave me? You know, was it because I just, I tried to rack my brain. I thought, if I could just think of the reason, you know, why they did it to me, I thought it would help. Yeah, I, I really tried to figure it out. And I thought, if I could just figure it out, I'll feel so much better. And I couldn't, I couldn't figure it out. And I, um, so I called my therapist <laughs> about four months postpartum. I waited a long time. And this is silly. So this is why I waited so long. I remember thinking, it's not that bad. I just had a C-section. Why, why am I having, why am I having such trouble with it is how I thought about it. And I, and I think some of that came from talking to other people, you know, like my OB afterwards and telling her, 
you know, I keep having flashbacks and nightmares. And I remember she looked at me like I was crazy. So this was your original OB, not the one who was there. Yes. Yeah. Did you tell that OB about what happened, about how you were treated? Did you make any comments about that? You know, I didn't. I didn't. And I think I was so angry and so um, confused. I didn't even know. I don't think I even knew how to say what happened to me. I went to that postpartum appointment thinking I was going to talk about it. And I, I went in with my husband and it just went so differently than I thought. You know, I, I, I remember tentatively bringing it up and saying, I'm really upset about the birth. I'm still having nightmares about it and I'm concerned. And she just looked at me really strangely. And she was like, you know, I know sometimes moms can be upset after we do the C-section and we don't find anything wrong. But just so you know, if it was an emergency, we would have had to get the baby out within 14 minutes. And I said, okay. And then she said, and and look at your baby. She motioned my baby, like brought to the appointment. And she's like, she's perfect. And that's- I mean, you're in front of me with PTSD and whatever, but look at your baby. Right. And, you know, I'm hearing this from a doctor and I'm thinking, well, they're, you know, surely they're, tra- <laughs> they're trained for postpartum depression and, and PTSD. Surely they're trained is what I was thinking. I, I don't know if she didn't recognize it or if she didn't, if she just didn't know what to do with it. But it was horrible. It was horribly invalidating. And the only other people I told after that what happened were my mother and a couple friends who worked at the hospital. <laughs> And, and their reactions were just as bad. I remember talking to one of my friends who worked at the hospital who had, who had birthed at the hospital. And I remember telling almost just part of my story to her, N- not even like the full details. And I remember she got this smile on her face that was kind of like, it was almost like she thought I was being dramatic. And I was like, I just, I'm not going to say anymore. You know, like at that point, I thought maybe I am just being dramatic. Maybe I'm just blowing this all out of proportion and I should just you know, let it go. But I couldn't. Then what happened? I was like, I have to say something. You know, I started to, I guess, feel better enough that I thought, okay, wait a second. I was still employed at the hospital. I thought, I work at this hospital. I know the patient, the patient advocate. Like, I'm friends with her. And like, she's going to be so angry when she hears about this. I remember thinking this. I'm like, I'm going to tell her everything that happened. I'm going to write it all out. And she's going to do something about it. And it's going to be okay. You know, like they're going to come back with an answer. That's what I wanted. I remember thinking there's going to be an answer. They're going to come back and they're going to say, Sarah, gosh, you know, we had no idea that that OB treated you that way. We are so sorry. Oh my goodness. You know, we wouldn't stand behind that behavior, whatever. Or, or like there was a management issue. I don't know. I thought there was going to be some like big answer that would explain it all away. So anyway, I wrote up this this complaint and I sent it to her and I didn't hear back for six weeks. I texted her. I had her personal cell phone number, texted her, I emailed her, nothing. And then so finally I get a call from her and she's like, okay, let's, let's meet about it. And she'd read, read everything. And I, and I tell her the story and she's like, well, you know, and I, and I told her that I felt almost that it had been, like you said, like a, like almost like a punishment. Like I said, it just felt personal. 
you know, it felt very, it felt punishing. And she said, and I remember she got this look on her face and, and was kind of like, no, it wouldn't, no, that would never, that would never happen. And I thought, oh my gosh, like, this is my friend and she doesn't believe me. And that moment was really scary for me. From then on, I was referred to risk management, the hospital's lawyers. I got my, a copy of my medical record and of the heart rate strip. And I thought, okay, well, I'm going to meet with the head of LMD. You know, I'll, I'll talk to somebody else. Someone has answers. You know, maybe, maybe the patient advocate doesn't have answers. Oh, and the patient advocate, by the way, works for PR, which I thought was funny too. Looking back. But anyway, so I, I meet with the head of LMD. And it was such an awful meeting. I remember thinking within the first, like, 10 minutes of that meeting, like, this is, I'm not going to get any answers from this person. She deflected everything I said, and she completely made it about me in, in like, a weird and personal way, too. Like, I remember her whole, the whole thing she was saying during the meeting was, you know, you were sexually assaulted before, so, of course, you're going to feel assaulted during birth. That's just what happens with sexually assaulted people. They just feel assaulted during birth, and it's nothing that we did. You know, it's how you feel. Um, that's horrifying. That's, yeah. that's really that's really frightening to hear. Like we understand that survivors are coming through here and they're feeling like we assaulted them and we just think that's normal. Right. And basically like the problems with you, Sarah, you know, you were assaulted. So you're, you know, something's wrong with you now, basically is the message I was getting. <laughs> well, like it's inevitable that you would feel assaulted in birth. Right. Right. Wow. I will say though, I'm impressed that you were even able to like have these meetings and get your story, write your story out, get it to them and all that. Well, how long did it take you to do that? Um, it took me, it took me four months to write the patient advocate. And then the meeting I think was, the meeting was a lot, a lot longer after because, you know, she took a long time to get back to me and then, mm-hmm. I think it was like, I think it was seven months. I think it was seven months postpartum. That's um, still pretty quick, I think, oh yeah. of a turnaround. Do you think it was because your therapist was helping you? I'm not helping you with that, but I just mean in general, like speaking with your therapist. Yeah, that helped. I do. I do think that helped um, because when I talked to her, I remember, you know, she asked me questions like, well, and she didn't, she didn't say it this way, but basically like, what, what do you, what do you feel you have to do with this experience and and I remember telling her like I feel like it's unfinished and I have to do something so that this doesn't happen to other women like I feel like that's my mission right now like it happened to me and I can't do anything about that and I'm very very angry about that but basically I'll be damned if this happens to somebody else especially because I, I worked there so I felt I felt like a responsibility to women, not only because I am a woman and I'm like, these are, you know, but also because I'm human being and because I work there, you know, <laughs> like you can't do this to people <laughs> and, and then get away with it, you know, and then just, you know, not, not have department meetings about it or, or be appalled by it. Yeah. But I think that therapy helped me. And, and I really think working there actually, working there actually was the only way I knew to go to the patient advocate and the head of LMD. Had I not worked there, I wouldn't know how to reach out or, or what channels to go through. 
I wouldn't have even know wouldn't have even known that risk management, you know, was the hospital's lawyers if I hadn't worked there. Yeah, I think a lot of people don't understand that when they when they make a complaint that it it's not going to like necessarily, it's usually not going to the person who's like there to improve patient care. It's going to someone um, who represents the hospital legally to make sure that you're not going to sue them. Exactly. And I also, I think what also helped me too is, is because I couldn't sleep, because I kept rerunning everything in my mind, I like basically angry Google, you know, uh, birth trauma and upset, angry about birth. And it led me, thank God, to birth monopoly and improving birth and like, you know, the unnecessary and like all these websites that were there. And I was like, and I remember feeling, cause I, I was in such a low point, you know, I, I mean, I, I was suicidal at one point, I was. And I remember I found these resources and I thought, okay, I'm not alone. And that helped me so much. Just knowing that, and I know that sounds terrible because it happened to other people, but it made me feel worse and better at the same time. Well, it's like, you know, one of the things that stands out the most about these stories and in your story is, you know, that feeling of like what you described before about like being in jello and like being silenced and then having all this stuff happen to you. And then it's like, you're again in jello where you're like, this stuff happened and people are like, no, it didn't. Like, no, that's not what happened. You're like, no, no, it really did. And then like, you get like the condescension and the, the disbelief and the, you know, just the doubt and the, you know, probably like, wow, she's a little crazy, you know? So like that whole feeling of just being like, totally like isolated, you know, like I picture it as like, you say jello, I, I think of it as a bubble. Like there's just like, there's this bubble around you where you're like invisible and mute. And so I can see how it would be a relief to find out that there are other people who feel the same way, because in a way I think it sort of means maybe I'm not crazy. I didn't think I was crazy, but these other people were making me think I was crazy. And now if all these other people have the same story, we can't all be crazy, right? Right. Right. And yes, I think that's exactly, exactly it. I thought like, okay, because I really do think I I started to feel like, well, maybe I, yeah, maybe I am crazy and maybe I should just stop talking about this until I, until I figure out what really happened. Like, (laughs) which is a horrible thing. I know what really happened, but you know, when I met with that hospital administrator, even she, she said to me, you know, the nurse drugged you, Sarah. And your hormones were all wacky. Your perception is probably vastly different than what our nurses remember. And I remember thinking, like, I was there. You weren't there. (laughs) How did things turn out with the hospital? How did that all go down after that? They wrote me a letter from risk management signed by, like, four people on the risk management team that I knew personally, which is also a little embarrassing I feel like to me like you know like wow like okay I know that person and they now they they know all this stuff about me I don't know it just felt weird and the letter said it seems to be that we have a a communication issue and I remember I was so insulted by that thinking like okay everything that happened to me I would describe now is an assault but they described it as a communication issue 
That's what it, they always it, say. That's what it always says. It always says. It sounds like, you know, maybe our communication could have been better. I'm like, that's the understatement of the year. Oh. So you could say that you could call rape a failure to communicate by that definition. Exactly. I'll, I'll no. stop my commentary. Sorry. No, I love your commentary. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> I just, that one really ticks me off because like, I cannot tell you the number of women who I've spoken with and worked with who have finally gotten up the courage to like make the complaint to the hospital, have the meetings, confront this horrible trauma. And then that is what they're told like 99.9% of the time. Well, maybe our communication could have been better or not even that, but it sounds like there was a miscommunication on both sides. Ooh. Yeah. So well, that I, I actually that find I, that a little triggering personally because I'm like so sick of hearing it. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. No, it was maddening. And I did hear, I remember that was something that the Ellen Diener said in our meeting too, when I was, you know, telling her about the part where, um, where they were breaking my water and doing all that. And I remember she said to me, well, why didn't you say anything? And at that moment, like when she said that to me, I remember like I went cold, like, oh my God, it is my fault. I didn't scream. I didn't say anything. But then I thought, wait, this is exactly what they tell people who are being raped or who are raped. And they say, well, why didn't you say anything? Why didn't you scream louder? You know, it just doesn't make any sense. The power, the way the power is, the structure set up, you know, there's all these little concessions that you're making all along the way. You know, it's like all these little mini battles. And at some point, they, they just, they all build up. And, and I really felt, I really feel the entire time was almost like I was being like groomed into submission a little bit. You know, I mean, I remember at my 40 week appointment, they were like, okay, let's talk about induction. And I was like, no, like, and it was always little things, you know, that I had to say no to. It's almost like by the time they did this use section, I was like, well, this is just one thing that they're doing to me. What does it matter anymore? Well, it's interesting in what you say about, well, why didn't you, why didn't you say no, basically? But it's funny because it doesn't seem like anyone ever brought up the fact that they're actually supposed to be asking your permission, not you're not supposed to be like actively resisting things that are happening to you. Like they're supposed to have asked your permission in the first place. Exactly. Or, or even told me what was going on to start with. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There was no, no consent and there was no information. There was no informed consent at all on any level, on any level at all. Yeah. And that's also what made me really angry about the letter where they said it was a communication issue because I remember I thought this is, Informed consent issue. This is right. Informed is, consent is communication, dudes. Yeah, legal communication. <laughs> well, but like I said about rape, like communication's super important. When you fail to communicate about things, it becomes a crime. <laughs> you know, like if you, I don't know, like you take things without you, asking, that's theft. <laughs> like yes. communication can be a really big deal. Yes. If you take over someone's bodily agency without asking them, that is assault, you know, no matter where you are. And um, I am positive that the L&D department there didn't, does not believe that. Not really scary that they didn't believe that. Yeah. So tell, tell everyone what happened ultimately with the hospital. 
Well, ultimately, I quit, quit my job. I decided there's no way in hell I could go back and work for a place that did that to me, much less in fundraising. You know, I, I couldn't I couldn't ask for people to donate to to a hospital that had done that to me. I mean, I was driving by in a small town, and just you know, driving by the hospital gave me shivers. So there's no way I could go to work there. So I started a blog, and and that's basically how I've been been working it out in my mind. And didn't they also block you on social media? Well, he did. Yes, that's right. I wrote a review on Facebook about them, and then they blocked me. And they also called me, like, almost right away. They left to the to apologize? No, no, no. To talk about what I had been posting on social media. And the whole tone was like I was, like, some, you know, errant teenager or something. Like, it was like I was in trouble. Like, that was the tone of voice the woman risk management had. <laughs> I was kidding when I said to apologize. Right, I know. <laughs> so now you're, um, you're definitely not taking it lying down so to speak. No, no. I feel like my, my mission is to not let this happen to any more women. And I know it's happening every day to women everywhere. And that hurts so bad to think about because I know what it did to my life and it completely put it on a different track. Just thinking about that happening to women everywhere makes me sick. And it makes me really angry that not everybody is outraged about it. I hear you on that. I totally hear you on that. But I think, you know, one of the most important things we can do at this point is um, just get the message out to people that it is wrong and you are allowed to be mad. I think that's a big revelation for a lot of people. Yeah, it definitely feels better feeling angry because I still feel angry. And I think and I think I always will. Feel, I think I'll always feel angry about it, no matter what happens to me, the future births or whatever. You know, it's just going to be it's, it's always going to be there, you know. Like I think assaults always are and traumas always are. And I have a lot of rage from it. And I just think I want to use that to kind of like propel me forward and, I don't know, try to prevent it from happening to other people. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for coming on the show and for the other work that you're doing to get this out there, that this stuff is happening and... We don't have to take it anymore. Thank you so much, Kristen. You're like so inspiring. <laughs> this conversation was recorded in July 2018. In September, the state of California responded to Sarah's complaint about her treatment that they had determined her claims were not substantiated. They told her testimony from her husband and doula could not be considered in their investigation, only testimony from the hospital. Sarah noted discrepancies in her treatment between what her records said according to the investigation and what she and her husband and doula remembered, even what her doula had documented and what her pediatrician remembered her daughter's records saying shortly after the birth. Sarah isn't giving up. We'll keep you posted with an update as soon as we have something more. This has been Birth Aloud with Kristen Piscucci. If you'd like to reach me with questions or show ideas or anything else, you can email me at birthaloudradio at gmail.com. Thanks for being here with us. We'll be back every other Sunday at 1 p.m. on WLXU. We'll see you next time.